there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I was told that last year, the women of Crossroads Church, Denver, attended a women's retreat, and they were encouraged there to view their faith as a great marathon race. Well, they said, we're interested in carrying over this vital message to my seminar. So they wanted me to talk about the faith race. Now, personally, they wanted to know four things. What has your faith race been like and what has kept you in the race? Number two, how have you managed to avoid disqualification from the race? What kind of training did the Lord require of you and any advice for us? And then four, what outstanding runners have you known and how have they helped you? So this was a unique assignment. I had never had anything quite like this. But as I pondered it, I thought it makes very good sense because it gives me an opportunity to talk about my wonderful parents. As you've just heard, my parents were missionaries and I was born there in Belgium. But they taught us from earliest childhood to love God and to do what he says. And so I think of them as icons in my life. Both of them were godly, dedicated Christians, and both of them had given their lives completely to the Lord. My mother did not come from a strong Christian family, but when she was about 18 years old, she was led to the Lord by another teenager. And my father was just one of many wonderful people on his side of the family, godly people for generations back. Now, as for what has kept my faith race, what has it been like, and what has kept me in the race, I would certainly have to say that it was my parents and their unequivocal determination to raise godly children. And I'm thankful to say that five out of the six of us became missionaries. Number six has always been in Christian work as well. But the Lord wants to teach us to trust him and to, faith, to continue the faith race. The shaping of a Christian family is a microcosm of heaven. That means just a small vision of what heaven is going to be like. Christ is the head. And we had a little brass plaque over the doorbell, the front doorbell of our home in Philadelphia. And it said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And I remember when I learned to read that that was an awesome statement. 
And I used to look at that little brass plaque and realize that everybody that came up on that porch had an opportunity to guess what kind of people lived there. And so our parents taught every one of us to love God. Every morning, my father got up between five, well, five o'clock at the latest, and he would go into his study, and we knew that our father was always on his knees with his Bible open, praying for his children. And so when we came to breakfast, we knew that our father had been on his knees for us. When breakfast is over, my father herded us all into the living room, and the first thing we did was to sing a hymn, and I was so glad to hear that you sang a couple of hymns here. I go to many different churches, and very seldom do we hear the old hymns of the faith. And so my parents taught us, and every morning we would sing one hymn, all the stanzas, never omitting the third stanza, as some people are wont to do. And then my, my father would open the Bible, and he would read a portion of the Bible, and then all of us got down on our knees, and he prayed for us, each one by name. And of course, that made a very deep impression on all of us. We were to join in with the Lord's Prayer when our, when our Father had finished praying for each of us. And then off to school we went and off to the office my father went. The question, these four questions that were given to me from this person here in Crossroads, how have you managed to avoid disqualification from the race? And I had to scratch my head and think of what would be a simple, short answer to that. I think the answer would be one day at a time. I certainly couldn't have managed to disqualify myself from the race if I was trying to do it all at once. But as you can very well see, you're looking at an old woman who has been trying to trust the Lord and do what he says for as many years as I can remember. So as for my being disqualified from the race, I would say it was only because it was one step at a time. Step by step, I'll follow Jesus. It's a little song that we used to sing. Then question number three, what kind of training did the Lord require of you? And have you any advice for us? Well, yes. My father... Certainly, both my parents required of us that we learn to trust and obey. And we were not to delay. Everything went like clockwork in our home. And I've had more than one person come up to me afterwards and say, boy, I don't know how in the world you ever survived in a place like that. All those regimentations and those things that you had to do and all that kind of stuff, I, I could never have survived in that. Well, thank God, God gave us the privilege of having people like that, like our parents. So what the Lord required of us was trust and obey, and that certainly was one of our favorite hymns. Trust and obey, for there's what? No other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 
And the fourth question that was asked of me, what outstanding runners have you known, and how have they helped you? Well, I really did have to scratch my head on that one. I thought of runners. How many runners have I ever known in my life? And then it occurred to me that I have a wonderful collection of women who have deeply influenced my own life. And I've put these into my little brown notebook that I carry with me everywhere. Of course, the first person on the list was my mother, Catherine Howard. And then the second one was a woman that I don't believe I ever saw. Well, I'm not really sure whether I ever saw her in the flesh or whether I just think that I did, but she was a woman by the name of Betty Scott. And she was going to China to marry her fiancé, John Stamm. And I think I'm right when I say that she sat at our dinner table. Anyway, I was probably only four or five years old at the time. But when I was about eight years old, my father told us about how John and Betty Stamm, when Betty had gone to China, she and her husband were captured by Chinese communists and beheaded. Now, can you imagine the impact that that had on my childish mind? But I thought to myself, I want to be a missionary, and I want to be that kind of a missionary. If the Lord wants to take my head off, that would be fine. Of course, I was eight years old. <sighs> then I, talk, I think about Dr. Virginia Blakesley, a woman, a doctor from Africa. And I never forgot her repeating a verse from the scriptures with tremendous power as the tears poured down her cheeks. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. I never forgot that. Well, I have to skip over a whole lot of them, but there was Catherine Howard, I've already mentioned. There was Catherine Kuhlman, who used to say, I believe in miracles because I believe in God. <laughs> and I used to listen to her on the radio. Are there any of you old enough to have remembered Catherine Kuhlman? Yes, I see some hands. She was terrific, wasn't she? I believe in God. Well, there was Catherine Kuhlman, Catherine Cumming, a dear little sweet lady who was the dorm mother when I went to Wheaton College. Catherine Cunningham, here's four Catherines so far. Catherine Cunningham was a godly woman that I met when I was at Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada, and she became like a second mother to me. And then Catherine Morgan, a woman who practically was responsible for booting me to Ecuador when I was determining whether the Lord wanted me in Ecuador or in Africa or in the South Seas or whatever. Catherine Morgan had been there before I got there, and she worked away there in Colombia after her husband died, and she just died uh, a year ago at the age of 91. So these were certainly some of the people who reminded me that God is going to help us. This list of women has greatly helped me. I go back to the list again and again and realize how blessed I have been in meeting so many I call the shaping of a Christian family a microcosm of heaven. In other words, just a very small taste of what heaven is going to be like. 
and Christ is the head, and the law is love. Politics has no place in the shaping of a Christian family. The rules apply to everybody, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And if we never before sensed the need of mercy and grace to help, having a family will certainly remind you. May I see the hands of those of you who are the mothers of families. Enormous number. It's a tough job, isn't it? And you have to be on your face before God, realizing that he has given you the privilege of raising these children for his glory. So we need mercy and grace to help. And having a family is certainly going to remind you daily. One of our favorite hymns was Trust and Obey. And trust and obey brings happiness and peace. It says in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And if we are going to truly shape a Christian family, we are going to have to give up our right to ourselves. Trust and obedience leads to happiness and peace. Now I've got nine points here for those of you who like to take notes and like to have some idea where, where I'm going. The first one, number one, is the authority of Christ. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's from Ephesians 2.10, the authority of Christ. Now, there was never any question as to who was the authority under the Lord Jesus himself in our home, and that, of course, was my father. But my father was gone five days a week, and my mother had to be the one who had the authority. And so, if any of us was disobedient, you can be sure that we were punished. And I remember very vividly one punishment that I received, and I certainly deserved it. I had been very nasty to the old man who lived next door to us. Uh, I can't remember what in the world I had said or done, but I just remember my mother coming out onto the porch and pulling me into the house, going through the living room and the dining room and the kitchen and taking me out to what we used to call the shed. It was a sort of a shed in the back. And she got the roughest rag she could find. And she got a, a block of that horrible tasting yellow soap. And she washed my mouth out. I mean, she scrubbed the inside of my mouth. 
I can assure you, I never sassed that old man again. <laughs> I'm quite sure I probably did a lot of other things that I needed to be spanked for. But that was just one of the unforgettable occasions when the authority of my mother was very clear and very obvious. Now, there were times when there were really bad things, and the worst thing we could hear would be our mother saying, you're going to have to talk to Daddy when he comes home. And that, of course, was scary. But how wonderful to be under the authority of Christ. We are his property. We are his redeemed. He loves us with an everlasting love. And he has instructed us how to live in order to please God. In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, I don't think I'll look that up right now because I think that comes under the same heading as we are God's workmanship. And God has instructed us as to how to live. Now, number two is order. And we, very early on, understood and accepted the order in our home. We children had to have our beds made when we were old enough to make a bed, and that was pretty young. We had to learn how to do things like that. We had to put our shoes very neatly in the floor of the closet. We had to pick up all of our toys before we could go to bed at night. And there were certain places where we could have toys and other places where we could not have them. Not the entire house was going to be used as a playroom. And so we had to learn order. Another thing was extremely important, which was punctuality. And my father taught us that when you fail in punctuality, when you don't get to a place on time where you belong, that is stealing somebody else's day. And so he was very strict with us about this matter of punctuality. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, says that everything is to be done decently and in order. And as I look back to the home in which we lived, I can see how day by day by day, everything was done decently and in order. My parents taught us how to put our shoes in a row, how to hang up our clothes, how to make our beds. Well, it's not easy, is it? As my mother used to say, and she got this from the scriptures, it's line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, there a little constantly, everlastingly picking things up, everlastingly tell us, telling us to do things the way they were supposed to do. But these orders that we were given were visible signs of invisible realities. Punctuality and order is another way to talk about thoughtfulness. Because if we're not punctual, then we're stealing somebody else's time, aren't we? My mother said we want a place for everything, and we want everything in its place. And we had in the kitchen drawer, a particular drawer in the kitchen, all the little things that we needed, like uh, tape and scissors and pencils and pens and 
all the crayons and things like that, all of those things were in a certain drawer there in the, in the kitchen. And if we opened that drawer and there wasn't any pencil in there or there wasn't any pair of scissors, then we could be quite sure that it was not because our parents had failed to put them there. It was because we children did. So, hey, who took the scissors out of the kitchen drawer? Of course, nobody. Nobody ever knew who it was, but believe you me, we, we heard about it. And there had to be a place for everything, and we had to get rid of the clutter. I had a, after I'd talked about this on my radio program, I had an interesting little uh, story from a, one of my radio listeners, and she had written a poem, actually a little song for her children. Too much stuff, too much stuff, more than enough, more than enough. It's out of the closet and spilling our face at our place. I can't remember all the rest of it, but it was a very cute little <laughs> thing to the tune of Three Blind Mice. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here of how many of you know that you've got too much stuff. But think about it. Ponder it. How do you think things are going to be in heaven? Well, of course, we believe they're going to be perfect. But part of the perfection has to start here, doesn't it? And the earlier we learn these things, the happier we're going to be. Now, number three was the authority of the word. And we knew that our parents meant exactly what they said. And I'm so thankful for that. My father would open the Bible, as I've told you, every morning after breakfast. Every evening when we finished supper, he would open that little book called The Daily Light, a collection of scripture passages that were put together by a family named Bagster in England about a hundred or so years ago. And it's a wonderful little useful book. And that was the one that was used every evening after our, prayer, after our supper. And we had a dear, sweet lady who used to come and work for us. Her name was Mrs. Kershaw. And she was a widow. And she was extremely poor. She was certainly as old as I am now, probably maybe a little bit younger than I am. She might have been a little bit younger then. But she was totally deaf, and she lived all by herself in a big old rackety-packety house. And she had only one son who was a good-for-nothing. He hardly ever came to see her. And somehow or other, my mother discovered this lady. And she thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have somebody like Mrs. Kershaw come and just help us with the housework? Because being poor and alone, she really didn't have a whole lot to do by herself. And so Mrs. Kershaw was like a ray of sunshine in our home. We loved Mrs. Kershaw. And she never stopped smiling. And upstairs was my step-grandmother, who hardly ever smiled. And we children were constantly being asked by our mother, please go up and talk to Nana. We didn't want to talk to Nana because Nana didn't really want to talk to us. She was just a rather crotchety old lady. But Mrs. Kershaw would go up there, both of these old ladies deaf as a post, <laughs> and the conversations were like ships passing in the night. But somehow or other, Mrs. Kershaw would cheer up dear Nana, 
so that we kids didn't have to cheer her up. Mother would often t- <laughs> Mother would say when we came home from school, why don't you just go up and talk to Nana just for five minutes? Mom, I don't want to. She doesn't want to talk to us. I want you to go up and talk to them. Well, the authority of the word. We had to do what our parents said. So now we're down, down to number four, which is prayer. And we have talked about the prayer at the table. We, of course, had prayer at the table. We had prayer following breakfast and prayer following supper. So it was a daily offering. And as we grew up, of course, we, as we learned to read, then we were taught to have our own private devotions. And we didn't always want to do that either. Times when we thought it was rather boring. But my parents had the, I was going to use a rather crude word that begins with a G, G-U-T-S, I won't say it out loud. But they had that, and they were able to just sort of calm and quiet us and say, well, this is what we want you to do, and we expect you to do it. Now, number five is discipline, and it says in Proverbs 15, 32, he who ignores discipline despises himself. Did you ever think about that? He who ignores discipline despises himself. Every one of us should discipline ourselves before we can be in a position to discipline anybody else. The definition of discipline is training which corrects, molds, strengthens, and perfects. Training which corrects, molds, strengthens, and perfects. That is discipline. And one aspect of discipline is punishment. And my mother had a little rod about that long, just a thin little rod, that she kept over the door of every room in the house. And we knew exactly what that was for. If we were disobedient, we could be spanked. But usually all my mother had to do was to raise her eyes to the top of the door, and we would be galvanized into action. I love Vance Havner's definition of a spanking. The posterior application of superior force. Try that on your children. They won't like it, but it's a good thing. Punishment is a rod or a spanking, the posterior application of superior force. If any of you are familiar with the writings of Vance Havner, you know what a delightful and very hilariously funny man he could be. So we're still on number five now. Control gained gained by enforcing obedience. And if our children are going to learn obedience at home, they will be far better prepared to go to school or perhaps join the army or something like that if there has been a strong foundation. And one of our favorite hymns was, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Number six, courtesy. Emerson said, courtesy is many petty sacrifices. Little things, you tell your children, take your elbows off the table, 
don't chew with your mouth, show, mouth open. Those are petty sacrifices. You don't want to listen to that. But it's courtesy. I mean, who wants to see somebody else chewing something with their mouths open? Many petty sacrifices. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. We are not to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. A Christian home should be a place in which we understand that it is my life for yours. I will give up what I want to do today in order to help you do what you need to do. That may be necessary every now and then. My life for yours. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated every single day of his earthly life. My life for yours. And he was on his way, of course, to the cross. There will be crosses for all of us who truly want to know the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 4, 2 and 3 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, what does this come down to? These are scriptures and sometimes our children have a very hard time understanding what the Bible really says. And it's our job, of course, to teach them what the Bible says. But something like courtesy is an opportunity to teach your children the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Quietness, for example. If somebody is asleep upstairs, and usually in our family, since I'm number two, uh, there was almost always a younger child upstairs crying or needing to go to sleep. So quietness was required in our home. If somebody needed the butter at the breakfast table or the lunch table, we were not allowed to reach across and get the butter. We had to say, may I please have the butter? And the child on the other side was to pass the butter. We had to wait to eat. My father did the carving. My mother put the vegetables on our plates, but we were not allowed to eat anything until Mama picked up her fork, or my daddy, whichever one. So we had to wait to eat. We were never to chew with our mouths open. We were never to leave towels on the floor and toys all over the house. May I strongly recommend that if you have children who have toys, just let them know that there are certain places where toys can be and other places where they can't be and they need to ask permission for each thing. And what about elbows on the table? You know, you just feel so miserable and you're so tired and so you put your elbows on the table and it certainly is not courteous. Cheerfulness would be the best thing. Now number seven, hospitality. Romans 12, 13 tells us, tells us that we are supposed to be hospitable. It says, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And I imagine there's some people in this room today who would say, oh, I would love to have hospitality, but we have such a small house. 
So we can't have guests. Yes, you can. There is a way to do it. It doesn't matter how small or how meager the meal may be, it is possible to show hospitality. And the Bible is telling us that we are required to do that. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, my parents made a strong point of having many, many people come through our home. That's how I learned all these wonderful missionary stories, because we had 42 countries represented in my mother's guest book. Over the years, there were that many people who had come through our home. And so we kids could sit there and listen with our eyes getting a bit wider and wider when we'd hear some of these wild stories that missionaries could tell us. But we loved having missionaries there. And it says in 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And I think my mother was one of the very few women in our church who took it very strongly that we are all meant to show hospitality. And when she would try to encourage the younger women there to have guests in their home, almost invariably the answer was, our house is too small, or we've got too many children, or we don't have enough money. Well, I grew up in the Great Depression, and I can remember times when there really was not very much of anything to eat. Usually we could come up with something like macaroni and cheese, but there were people, of course, who were much worse off than we were. But even during the Depression days, my parents continued to have guests in our home. And that meant a great deal to us. When I look at that guest book with the 42 countries, I can think of many, many times that I remembered exactly who that person was. And what a tremendous blessing it was for us children to hear these missionary stories firsthand. So I strongly urge you to give some serious thought and prayer to hospitality. Forget about whether everything in your house is perfect or whether it's the way you want it to be. Do the best you can. Ask your children to help you when you're ready to have some guests coming. And be humble enough to let people come and see your humble home. Don't make excuses. We can't do that and get away with it in God's economy. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Make it simple. Number eight, work. The offering of my consecrated will and my physical strength. That's what work ought to be. The offering of my consecrated will. I don't know what your work may be. I'm sure I'm looking at a lot of women who have to work. It's good Good thing that you can come to a seminar on Saturday and perhaps leave behind the five days. But every one of us, in some way or other, has to work. And when I lived with the Alka Indians in Ecuador, it was amazing to me how hard those Indians had to work. The men and the women and the children had to work their heads off in order to survive. But I never heard them complain. They laughed all the time. Those of you who saw Ming Kai Yi recently, when was that? Yesterday? Or 
no, he's in, uh, he's someplace else right now, but he's one of the Alcas who's been traveling with Steve Saint. And it was just amazing to me how happy-go-lucky these people were. They had to work from 5 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night, men, women, and little children. Remember, in whatever stage you are, in whatever kind of work that God has given you, that you are serving the Lord Christ. Think about that. As I wash dishes, I am serving the Lord Christ. As I'm cleaning the bathroom, I am serving the Lord Christ. As I'm writing a book, I'm serving the Lord Christ. It's work, it's hard work, and it's rep repetitive, but it's exactly what Jesus himself had to do, wasn't it? When he was growing, growing up, undoubtedly he worked as a carpenter with his earthly father. And then when we know anything at all about his work, his life, from the age of 30 to about 33, he worked. All work is hallowed. Remember that. All work is hallowed. It belongs to God. We can offer it to God, no matter what it is, no matter how difficult it may seem or how trivial. It's a wonderful thing to be able to teach your little children that when you pick up the toys and put them where they belong, Jesus is pleased. This is your work. Yes, you have to work, picking up things off the floor, putting away things, loving each other. My two youngest grandchildren now are six and, let's see, seven, excuse me, seven and nine. I can hardly keep up with them. My daughter has eight children, and the seven and nine-year-olds are the babies, as it were. And it's very interesting to me to see the dynamics between them. They really do love each other most of the time. And it's nice to see that. Some of you perhaps know the story of Brother Lawrence. He was a monk who wanted to learn to know God. And so he came to a monastery and was very surprised when he was immediately given a job in the kitchen. He was expecting that he was going to sit quietly in his monk's cell and meditate. And here he found himself in a hot, messy kitchen with all kinds of people rushing back and forth and clattering and doing this and that and the other thing. And Brother Lawrence began to realize that it was in that very difficult place where people were shouting at each other and many things had to be happening all at once. It was there that he learned to love work. And if you really hate work, I strongly urge you, in the name of Christ, to learn to love it and to thank God for the work that he has given you. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, If a man will not work, let him not eat. You might need to apply that to one of your sons someday. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on, Mom, I don't like this stuff that we have tonight. And, well, you're going to eat that or you're not going to eat anything. First Thessalonians 4.11 says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect 
of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. 1 Thessalonians 4.11. And the one before that was 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Mind your own business, work with your hands, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not have to be dependent on anybody. And number nine, we are to be responsible for God's good gifts. And perhaps the most difficult is money. Do we regard the money that God has enabled us to, to perhaps learn or uh, the money that comes from your job or whatever it is, do you think of that as mostly yours or is it God's? Certainly you should think about it as firstly God's. If God has enabled you to make some money, then give it all back to him and then say, Lord, show me how you want me to use this. Pray about the use of it. And that is very important. And my parents were very strict about 10% going to the Lord always. And that was not easy at all, especially during the Deep Depression. I remember my mother telling about how she, was, she went up to clean the guest room after some missionary had left. And she was very upset and feeling very bewildered and hopeless. And it, it, she just decided to sit down in the little rocking chair in the guest room. And there happened to be a Bible there. She picked up the Bible, opened it at random, and found a $50 bill in that Bible. She never found out who left it. $50 was about four times as much as my father made in a week. And so, of course, it was a case of one of God's good gifts. And I'm sure that she would have given the 10% at least. Do you allow your possessions to accumulate? Do you hoard them? Do you fear loss? How many times have you been through your closet and, che and checked out how many dresses, or how many pairs of pants, how many blouses you don't really need? There are a lot of people who need them. We were taught stewardship of water, electricity, food, clothes, the body, and everything. We were responsible for the use of God's good gifts. May the Lord give you grace to ponder the things that you've heard this morning and ask the Lord to show you the specific things on which you need to work. And I will end what I had to say this morning with those simple four words, do the next thing. That is a great simplifier. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>